Blog Talk Radio. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. And greetings everyone. This is Julie Wrench in the studio with Scott Martis today. We have a really exciting show for you with a very special guest that has been on the show in the past. And um, we have a lot of great discussion coming up today about the Megalodon. Uh, let me go ahead and bring Scott on in. Scott, how you doing? Good, and I want to welcome you back to the show. You've been absent the last couple of episodes due to yeah, family things that you had to, to take back. care of. And I'm, yep, glad to have you back. And our guest today Thanks. is the illustrious Max Hawthorne, author of the Chronos Rising series. Hello, Max. Hello, Scott and Julie. How you guys doing? Max. Good, good. You got a lot of new stuff going on. Tell us about your new website. Well, uh, I think the word illustrious that you just used would probably be a, a good way to describe it. Um, the uh, well, let's put it this way: I, the the old site that I had, uh, it was functional, but it really didn't. It, it really wasn't my cup of tea. You know, I didn't have a hand in designing it. You kind of like thrown to the wolves sometimes with these things. Um, I wanted a new site. I brought on a designer myself that I picked. And I uh, personally worked with the guy hand-in-hand to create uh, what, for me, I think is an ideal author's site, especially for somebody who writes in the genre that I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was taking a look at that uh, just a bit ago. And, Max, what what do you think the the biggest change is that benefits uh, someone coming to visit your site? What's the... The one thing you like the most that's changed? Well, the whole site has been redone. I mean, uh, it's much more streamlined. It's, the, old, the old site was convoluted, too complex, garish, horrible color, color choices, layout design. It, it just wasn't a friendly site or anything like that. But I wanted something artistic, like I said, that goes with the genre. So I picked a theme that was very nautical, yet at the same time indicative of past history. I'm sure you guys both have seen like maps, let's say, of the seas from the Renaissance mm-hmm. and such, and they always have like sea monsters on them, right? Things like that. Right. Or, or sextons and compasses, you know, the technology of the day. So the ocean was a much more mysterious and more feared place than it is now. So I wanted a site that was going to convey that to the visitor. So we chose a lot of classical imagery, images of marine creatures that were real or imagined from going back hundreds and hundreds of years, 
the globe, the maps, everything like that, the, the color thing. And it's all been designed in such a way that it lets the, despite the fact that your backdrop might be, let's say, an image of a, a crack in a woodcut from hundreds of years ago, at the same time, the color scheme works so that the book color really jumps out at you and the reader has everything they need. So, you know, you, you pick and choose what you want to do on the site. It looks fantastic. Yep. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Yep, absolutely. One, one of my personal favorites, and this isn't quite finished yet, but is the Paleo Gallery, which is one of the things that we kept from the last site. And the Paleo Gallery basically is me giving artists, and I've got a lot of great people on there, uh, if you pop on and see, but it, giving paleo artists out there like Davida, Bonadonna, and people like that the chance to you know, have an extra place to show off their work, their paintings and illustrations and such. And what I wanted to do for that one was the other backdrops for other pages, let's say, have you know, different images that go with, like I said, that whole sea monster map theme and how the globe looked imagined you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago etc for the paleo gallery the backdrop is actually a sepia toned image of charles r knight sculpting a stegosaurus and anybody who knows anything about paleo paintings and things of that would consider charles knight to be the great grandfather of the art basically mm -hmm. kind of you know, he saw it. He really was the father of it all. So I like the layout where it's like it's almost like he's looking at the images that people see on there as they're perusing the gallery. So to do speak. you? Uh, yeah, that, do you have any Gen uh, Burian in your gallery? I believe there's a few in there, and if there isn't, uh, I, we should definitely get some. Yeah, he, had, he was great too. Him and Knight, man, they basically invented what we consider to be paleo art, and they were both a big influence on Ray Harryhausen too. Yeah, I think and Harry House actually said he, he had gotten to speak to Charles Knight himself at one point, which yeah, he was Knight a big yeah, highlight. Sometime in the 50s. Yeah, that, that sounds right. I'm very happy with the site. Well, tell everybody what your um, website, your, you know, what, what to look for when they're going on there to find you. Oh, you mean to find the site proper? Uh, mm -hmm. That's easy. They, uh, you can go to either maxhawthorne.com, my name, M-A-X-H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E.com, or they can just go to cronusrising.com, cronus with a K. Either way, it'll take you right there. There's merchandise. Oh, there's nice. a new FAQ. I had to answer like 30 questions for the site builder to put out there for people. Uh, there's links to other you know, individuals, and there's even some free book stuff on there for people as well. So a lot of choices. Great. And tell us about your kitty cat. Oh, Mace? <laughs> yeah. Mace, the minister of fluff, a.k.a. Yeah. the ambassador of fluff, the fluff man, the fluff dude, or, you know, when it's just you and him, it's just the fluff. Um, actually, Mace is my daughter's cat, um, which is probably why you guys on, like, Facebook, you see pictures of him and her most of the time and stuff. But uh, Mace is a is my, my little girl's kitten. I, I call him a kitten. He's eight months old, and he's already over 12 pounds. But uh, mm -hmm. he's a Siberian forest cat from Russia. Uh, this is a pure breed that goes back hundreds of years, actually to the czars of Russia. And it's actually descended from the also a, shares a, a lineage, I should say, with the Norwegian forest cat and with the Maine Coons. These are like basically the three largest domestic cats in the yeah, world. Yeah, they get huge. Yeah, and these are all these cats are all descended from Viking 
a Viking ancestry. They're Viking cats, basically. So, uh, but yeah, so Mace will probably be about 25, 26 pounds when he's full grown. Um, and I don't mean, you know, an overweight 25, 26 pounds. So that's a sizable cat. Um, he's great. He's a lynx point, and he is the most intelligent and personable feline. Uh, I, you know, it just it's like a person. He literally has the mentality of a playful child, including a, 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 a sense of humor where he likes to play gags on people and stuff. I, yeah. I, I, I recently um, lost my beloved cat, Fibes, passed away, and we just got a new one. She's really cute, but she's been attacking my feet. My feet look like raw hamburger meat from where she's bit and clawed. She's in the heat, so we got to get her fixed. But other than that, everything's going fairly well. I think a cat, honestly, for, I mean, I'm, I'm a, what you'd call a, <clears throat> quote, mature individual, maybe uh, physically mature, not mentally, but uh, I think a cat sometimes for somebody who, you know, works out of their house and sits at a desk writing all day makes for a better companion sometimes than a dog because they're, they're a little m- less maintenance involved, let's say. They're a little more self-sufficient, you know. Yeah, you can't, dog won't go to a litter box. you got to yeah. take right. them out. Yeah. But just the other day, you know, I mean, I love, like I said, this cat's sense of humor. I was holding him in both arms, and then Ava came up, and she was, like, doing a little smushy face with him and all that. And she has, my daughter has long hair, and the cat, of course, loves when she leans over him with that long hair because it's like a, you know, a thousand toys for him to play with. And so he'll be digging his claws in there gently, of course. He's got amazing self-control. And he had her, like, kind of bent forward. So he had all her hair in his, te- in his teeth and his claws. She's like, oh, my God, he's got me, he's got me. And everybody's laughing, including her. And she finally manages to get away from him. And then he turned and he looked at me. And I kid you not, he winked at me. He had a smirk <laughs> on his face and he winked. And I went, he just winked at me. You know, he was like, did you see that? That was funny, right? You know, <laughs> and this is how he is. You know, it's like when I write, he sleeps on a desk, like on my desk. He'll take up a third of it, just lays out there, and he doesn't make any noise. And, you know, it's great. I, I have no downside. So oh, I'm happy be with the so cat. lucky. I've got one that's chewing on computer cables. Uh, so I'm trying to break her of that, but it'll all work out in the end. I'm going to mail you some of those cable That's a perfect cat for you there, Max, because, you know, that sense of humor and that that quirkiness, yep, I can see it. Yeah, I just, the the tackling is becoming a little bit, like he has one of his gags that he likes to do where I'll be walking, let's say, through, through the dining room toward the kitchen or something, and he'll run up behind me and he'll just jump up and clothesline me, like hit me in the back of the leg, like in the crook of the knee, you know, as a joke. You know, he just boom like that, and then he keeps it takes off, and you're like, oh, gee. and he, you know, as he's getting bigger and bigger, it's having more impact, literally, you know. So, but uh, you, you live with a clown, you know, you have to deal with the right. humor. So, love the cast. So, the theme of today's episode is was Megalodon as an adult a scavenger. And I believe uh, Max has a very interesting theory about the Megalodon. Um, looking yeah, at pictures will. of these things, the art that they have created, you would think these things are just formidable um, you know, attackers well, of anything were, and everything they wanted. I think maybe they've probably been a little 
over exaggerated in some places. Yeah. Well, like, I think. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that, you know, it's. Megalodon has been scaled down somewhat from 70 feet to a reasonable, what, 52 feet mm-hmm. now, for the most part? Per the elasmobranchologist, yes. Yeah. I mean, I've seen this, you know, when I, I research whatever life forms I put in my books. I mean, you saw the, the, the raptors that I created for Cronus Rising Crack in Volume 2, for example. And whenever I put something out there, I want to try and give it a, a new spin, a new angle. You know, you don't want to be like, you know, one of these guys who just rehashes the same stuff. So when I was researching putting a megalodon shark in my first Kraken novel, there, the, her, I think her name was Ursula, um, I wanted to the shark to be huge and intimidating and whatnot, but also wanted to look at it from a, a biological perspective. And when I was doing research on the animal, one of the things that always stuck in my head about it was the teeth and how different the teeth are, how similar, yet how extremely different they are from, let's say, Carcharodon carcarius, you know, a great white shark's teeth. I mean, you would see, you know, that's, that's the shark that Megalon is always compared to. You know, it's said to be like a great white on steroids and things of that nature. But one thing I noticed about the teeth was the great white's teeth stay relatively unchanged as the shark grows, meaning that they're triangular blades, they have formidable serrations that are fairly large, they don't really change shape drastically, whether the shark is 5 feet long or 22 feet long. I have, for example, like I'm holding in my hand right now, I have in front of me a fossilized 6.5 inch megalodon tooth from my collection, I believe it's 2 million years old. At least that's what they said, although I've heard that time has been scaled back now. And I also have a casting from a a 3.5-inch great white shark's tooth, which would have come from a shark the size of, let's say, Deep Blue, you know, that big one that's been on the news lately and such. And if you look at the teeth, the megalodon tooth isn't just bigger. It's thicker it's fatter, it has a rounder, much more blunt tip, and it has very, very tiny serrations along the sides. So when you look at this, you're like, okay, well, this doesn't look like as good of a cutting tool, let's say, as the great white shark's tooth. Like the great white's tooth, even a three and a half inches, is a dagger. I mean, if I took this thing with my hand and I came up to a piece of steak, raw meat, and I gave it a nice push, it would, it would go all the way into the root, guaranteed. No problem. Mm. But if I tried it with the megalodon tooth, that's never happening. I could probably stand on it, and then maybe I could get it to do that. But it would take a tremendous amount of pressure to put that through there. So you look at this, and you're like, okay, so why are these teeth so different? Then you look at a cross-section of them. And what I discovered is instead of being blade-shaped like the makos, the great whites, and most other shark's teeth, you see that megalodon, and this happened with his ancestors also, you know, Chubutensis and the other different species, that as the shark grew, it's the crowns of its teeth changed, and this is the pinnacle of this, let's say, takes place with megalodon. And the crown has like almost like a, a cylindrical column you know, inside of it, if you look at it. And, then, and that's a, like a support column, let's say, you know, to absorb impact and stress, etc. But then the cusps on the sides of the, of the crown, they flare out 
with these blade-like edges, and it becomes basically a wedge. So now when you look at a wedge, I mean, what's this thing for? You know, you see people using wedges for, for I mean, I use Splitting them for wood. Wedges. There you go. Okay, yeah, like a log splitter, okay? Yeah, so if you've seen like, anybody that's chopping wood, they'll have, like, one of these wedges, and they'll put it in there and, you know, whack it with a sledgehammer or whatever and stuff, you know, to split the wood apart. And, the, in fact, I've seen uh, log splitters, those wedges that actually had serrations on them, okay? Mm. So it dawned on me that these teeth were really more for crushing bone or breaking bone apart. You know, that, that was, like, my initial take on it. And then you think, well, why does it need to do that? You know, I mean, great whites kill elephant right. seals as big as them, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and how they do that is they come up and they grab the seal by the, you know, lower abdomen or by the tail and they inflict a nasty bite and they let it bleed out and they come back and they eat its prey. You know, the, the, the predator wants to do the, wants the minimum damage possible back on itself when it makes a move on something. You know, if it gets wounded or hurt, loses an eye, whatever, you know, the predator wants the easy way out every time. I mean, that's just yeah, science of it. Rather than hanging around oh. fighting with the thing, the idea is to come in and give the worst possible death blow you can give in one thing, then back off and let it die, then come in and feed it your leisure. Exactly. So now, if, if you've got, you know, like, and, and you've, I've seen people try and say that, the uh, oh well the shark's teeth they had to get thicker and bigger as it grew because otherwise they would have snapped. Well, that doesn't stop the great white from doing its thing. No, yeah. but and you can you look, look. You can look at the Meg's ancestors. They Meg is supposed to be descended from Ototus obliquus, and you've got a whole series of intermediate forms going through the mid tertiary leading up to Megalodon, and you can physically see the change in the shape of the tooth as you go through the lineage. You can see the loss of the cusps on the side and the serrations coming in. And that happens more and more, especially as whales became more and more prevalent and became a food source. So, yeah. But the, the, the scavenger thing, the, see, this is the thing that dawned on me. So if you look at the skeleton of a whale, a sperm whale, any kind of whale, okay, you know, proponents of the megalodon, and there's a lot of, you know, passionate, what I like to call, well, I'm not even going to call it, it's, it's obvious, size-obsessed megalodon fanboys out there that want to try and, you know, give this shark the image as being this monstrous 90-foot thing that swims at 70 miles an hour and can even jump out of the water and grab a plane or something like that. I mean, I've seen movies where that happened. Okay. Now, this isn't to say this shark wasn't a formidable killing machine, which it absolutely was. If you were in the water with a 20 or a 30-foot megalodon, you know, you're, you were prey. I mean, at that size, the sharks were active hunters. But the, the changes in their teeth as the teeth grow over the animal's lifespan indicates that eventually when these sharks are 40, 50 feet long, they become... I don't want to use the term obligate scavengers, meaning they have to scavenge, but the fact of the matter is is they're very cumbersome and slow at that size. It just gets to the point where it's just easier when you need a tremendous amount of protein, and when you're slower than the whales around you, it's easier to appropriate the kill, let's say, of a smaller megalodon. And 
you know, you've got a free meal. I mean, it's the easiest well, way out. No killing involved. One thing I'd like to add is that they believe Otodos obliquus was feeding on large sea turtles and other sharks. And you can see as this change in the tooth through the lineage is going up toward Megalodon, it's reflecting a change in diet. It's reflecting at the same time that these sharks were getting bigger and their tooth morphology was changing, it's the same time that marine mammals were evolving and invading the ocean environment. So I'm sure there's a direct correlation between that. And the interesting thing also is is that the well the the thing that really clinched it for me was, you know, some people will say, oh well, the teeth were all were if so if the, if the argument that they were going to break doesn't hold was that oh well they were designed to crush bone is the other argument so the 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 shark would target a whale's um, you know spine and things of that nature or rib cage to you know dis- disable it, but that's a harder target, and a whale skeleton there's so much vulnerable tissue down there. If you look at the skeleton, the rib cage is a small percentage of the actual body of the whale. There's so much there that has just blubber and muscle on it that a teeth like, let's say, the great whites would be able to inflict a lethal wound and once again wait for the thing to die. So if you've got teeth designed to crunch bone, then why do you have them? And then the kicker, I'm sorry, is that for me is that discovering, like I said, these things were like wedges. And I checked and I, I kind of laid it out there. And you could actually see that the shape of the tooth is ideal if you take whales, especially the, the smaller whales of that time period that were Megalodon's primary forage base, let's say, like Cetotherium. And the Megalodon's mm-hmm. teeth, the couple of them, the upper ones and the upper jaw there, okay, would actually slip between the ribs. And then as it bit down, those thick parts of the tooth and the crown, that, that column slips between there, and then the blade-like cusps as they dig in start to cut, slice grooves on the ribs on either side. Crack, the shark bites, boom, it, and it pulls out a whole hunk of the rib cage and all the organs that are behind that rib cage, which we're talking about, you know, the heart, the lungs, that type of stuff. So even yeah, if, and it's also getting bone marrow out of the crushed bones, which is more um, protein and more nutrients, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, of course, then you say, well, well, why would it need that? And, the, and then what, if you look at a lot of whale carcasses floating around, though, a lot of whale carcasses get stripped very quickly. So if the big, let's say a 50-foot megalodon is swimming along and it comes to a carcass and it's already been stripped by smaller ones and other sharks, et cetera, those sharks don't have the tools to get through that big rib cage like the big mama does. So the heart and lungs and things like that are still there. So all she has to do is swim in. The other one, fish are going to give ground. I mean, let's be realistic. If you're 50 tons of predator coming at somebody like a bus with teeth, they're not going to get in her way. You know, she swims up. The, the whale's not moving. So she's able to slip those teeth right between those ribs, then snap, crackle, pop, and it's dinner time. I mean, that's basically what it boils down to. Well, you know, there's been so much debate about, you know, they agree the species is Megalodon, but there's been all this debate about what the genus name is. The latest trend is they're calling it Otodus Megalodon. So using that as an example, going back to Otodus Obliquus, which is generally considered to be the ancestor 
Mm-hmm. I think you would have to look at all these intermediate species like Carcharocles, uh Auriculatus, um, Angus Titans, and Shubatensis, mm-hmm. and now they most likely will be called by the genus Ototus. So in other Which, words, you'll yeah. have genus Ototus going all the way from Ototus obliquus up to Megalodon now, most likely. You know, I actually have in my fossil case an Angus Titans tooth that is larger than, at least according to Wikipedia, they say that that species maxed out at like 4.6 inches or something like that, and slant height. I have an Angostidans tooth that's pushing 5 inches in slant height. And the interesting about it is that that center crown, even there, in that species, that far back, is starting to show that more, that, that extra heft and mass, let's say, that would assist it in eating things that, you know, were harder to, to bite down on, things of that nature. So, And um, I think we should point out to people, too, that the immediate ancestor to Megalodon Shubatensis, there's no clear boundary between the two. There's like a series of intermediate-sized teeth that they're not sure as to which species it belongs to. Well, isn't the theory that they branched off, like Chubutensis was Megalodon's direct ancestor, and then I believe it, it, it's some of them branched off and started changing while some of them stayed yeah, as Chubutensis. Yeah, what I'm getting at is there's, there's no clear boundary mm-hmm. between the two species is my understanding, that there's, there's, a, there's a point you get to where the boundary is not clear, that there's it's, just a series of intermediate size teeth, mm-hmm. this morphology is not clearly one or the other. Oh, it may be. <clears throat> it may have to do with the whole scavenger thing. I mean, Chubutensis maxed Perhaps. out at 40 feet. So maybe they were a little bit more active predators. I mean, I have a sizable Chubutensis tooth there also. And it's more great white looking than Megalodon looking, let's say. So, mm-hmm. you know, that may be the upper size limit, let's say, where scavenging becomes uh, much more desirable once you pass that limit or something. You know, it's just yeah. a mass thing. I mean, I've, you know, you, you see a lot of people out there try, like, my theory on Megalodon being a primary scavenger. Okay, once again, we're not saying the animal, it's not being an obligate scavenger, okay, and it's not being an opportunistic feeder at 45, 40, 50 feet, whatever, okay. At this point, the animal is going to get the bulk of its calories from carrion, in my humble opinion, okay? Yeah. And, but it's not going to turn up a meal. So, you know, it can track carcasses all over the place, and it doesn't need to eat very often. I have some details we'll get into in a minute about that. But point being that if a megalodon queen, we'll call her, at the species maximum size, which I think they said is around 52 feet and some 50 tons or whatever, is swimming along, and she discovers a whale that's giving birth. Hey, perfect time, you know. Which is in a vulnerable position to begin with. Right, or a whale that's injured. In a position that can't immediately flee. Right, or even an animal that's just not a fast swimmer, like a sirenid or a sea turtle, I mean, that's going to be lunch. But when you're a shark of that size, you want the most bang for your buck. You need the biggest mouthful. So if you, you know, your your easiest technique is if there's a, 
you know, a carcass of a whale there, and there happens to be, uh, you know, one of your children who's only 30 feet long and you're 50 feet long is feeding on it, maybe killed that whale, and maybe is sharing it with a chubutensis, and you come up and you're going to take your place at the feeding trough, you know, size well, matters. I generally thought that the really yeah. gigantic whales, like, get the size of a blue whale, didn't evolve until after Meg went extinct. And, of course, the timeline of Meg's extinction keeps varying also. So yeah, the, the uh, recent paper that just came out claims that the ones that are, the teeth that are 2 million years old are actually reworked, mm-hmm. and they have pushed the extinction date back a million years to about I, 3 I million saw... years ago rather than 2 million years ago. Yeah, there's, there's so many papers that come out, and I, I wonder yeah. if people just want to see their name in print or what. But, mm. I mean, there was that one where they were saying that the Megalodon, two million or two and a half million years ago, was killed because a star exploded or something, and radiation hit the Earth, and it killed yeah. out, killed off all the sharks. Mind you, well, the whales kind that of are a rehash of a thing that was going around a couple of years ago where they tried to say that radiation from a supernova caused the extinction of the megafauna about 10,000 years ago, too. So this is this idea has been floating around for a while. So. Yeah, but I wasn't, I wasn't buying that whole thing because it's like, okay, so the whales lived, and they're on the surface almost all the yeah. time, and they would have gotten a lot more radiation. Why weren't they all killed off? You know, yeah. Why is a shark that's hundreds of feet, sometimes thousands of feet down, not thousands, maybe a thousand feet down, let's say, okay, why is it getting killed off and not... You know, not the whales. That that made no sense. Well, but there then actually that other... is believed to have been a, a a big whale extinction along the same time that Meg, Megalodon went extinct. But well, I obviously the... didn't kill them all. You know. But is that at the two and a half million mark, or is now is it the three and a half million mark? Was there an extinction? Well, I think I think this was originally supposed to be the the two two and a half million mark. Yeah. So if the three and a half million date is correct then the people that said a comet or a supernova or whatever radiation was the only thing that could kill this monster, you know, no, nothing else on heaven or earth could do it. It had to be a star exploding. Then they must have had a lot of egg on their faces when it turns out, oh, you guys were off by a million years. Ha, ha, ha. Well, I think, if I remember right, the whale extinction that took place around three million years ago was caused by primarily a bunch of toxic algae blooms, mm-hmm. if I recall. I, I I would bet very good money that, like Livyatin, the uh, raptorial sperm whale, um, probably died off around the same time as the Megalodon shark. And originally they said Livyatin only lived from, I think it was 11 to 12 million years ago. And then they found a, a tooth in Australia that changed that to 5 million years ago. And yeah. you know, there's just so few fossils is the thing. I mean, you're yeah. dealing with an animal that's far out at sea. You know, it doesn't shed teeth like my cat sheds hair like a shark does. So you don't have a lot of evidence of this thing. But it wouldn't surprise me that that, that animal was around up until the same time period and perished because its forage base were the same whales that the Megalodon shark ate, and neither of them had anything to eat, carcasses or no carcasses. You know, yeah. it was probably, probably more like the relationship today between the orca and the great white, you know, just on a much larger scale. So. Well, this this new paper that has pushed the extinction date back a million years is suggesting that the great whites, competition with great whites, is partially responsible for the extinction of the megalodon. It's possible. 
I mean, a white maybe, shark would be maneuverable. Maybe what's what was going on, I mean, I don't know for sure, but is that the juveniles were competing with the adult great whites, and it was getting them in the juvenile stage. It's possible. And I've there seen... weren't enough of them making it to adulthood, mm-hmm. and that's possibly what wiped them out. In fact, let me just see if I can bring that paper up and read the abstract. Well, while you're doing that, I, I'll just touch on something that you know sounds relative, is that a lot of times when a species goes extinct, it's the loss of the breeding adults that really hurts the population. If a, one shark, for example, gives birth to, let's say, 5 or 10 or 15 at a time, and you're losing the breeding adults, then that's going to have a substantial impact. So if you have a situation where you, you said it was an algae bloom, for example, that wiped out a lot of whales, right, Scott? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's if that happens... You're a mark, apparently. Right. So if you, have, if you have this point where all these whale species go extinct from that, then you don't have whales for the small, medium-sized megalodons to prey on, and you certainly don't have carcasses if the big brooding adults are dependent on carcasses, then there's nothing for them to eat. So if you've got a mm-hmm. drop in population of whales by 90%, now the shark population has 90% less food, and the adults, 90% of them may starve to death. If you lose 90% of your brood stock, as it's called, your species yeah. is, is very vulnerable at that point. You know, it doesn't take much to push it over the edge. And then a great white comes along, like you said, and, you know, feeds on, let's say, a uh, a young megalodon, which I, I, they changed it now. I think they were only like seven or eight feet long at birth, I think it was, or something. First they were saying seven, it was 10 or 12. Yeah. yeah, so seven feet. And a 12-foot great white makes a meal out of one. I mean, I've seen tiger mm-hmm. sharks you know, prey on hammerheads. So. Well, if I recall, too, this new paper is talking about loss. There was a significant loss of breeding habitat, too, for the mags. I've got the I've got it up now. If you want me to just read the abstract real quick, go for it. Yeah, this is. I mean, this just came out like two weeks ago. The paper is yeah. called "The Early Pliocene Extinction of the Megatooth Shark Otodus Megalodon: A View from the Eastern North Pacific." All right, let me see here. Um, this is the abstract. The extinct. Giant shark, Otodus megalodon, is the last member of the predatory megatooth lineage and is reported from neogene sediments from nearly all continents. The timing of the extinction of Otodus megalodon is thought to be Pliocene, although reports of Pleistocene teeth fuel speculation that Otodus megalodon may still be extant. The longevity of the Otodus lineage, Paleocene to Pliocene, and its conspicuous absence. In the modern fauna begs the question, when and why did this giant shark become extinct? Addressing this question requires a densely sampled marine vertebrate fossil record in concert with a robust geochronologic framework. Many historically important basins with stacked otodus-bearing neogene marine vertebrate fossil assemblages lack well-sampled and well-dated lower and upper Pliocene strata. For example, the Atlantic Coastal Plain. 
The fossil record of California, USA, and Baja California, Mexico, provides such an ideal sequence of assemblages preserved within well-dated lithostratigraphic sequences. This study reviews all records of Otodus megalodon from post-Mycenaean marine strata from western North America and evaluates their reliability. All post-Zanclean Otodus megalodon occurrences from the eastern North Pacific exhibit clear evidence of reworking or lack reliable provenance. The youngest reliable records of Otodus megalodon are early Pliocene, suggesting the extinction at the early late Pliocene boundary around 3.6 million years ago, corresponding with the youngest occurrences of Otodus megalodon in Japan, the North Atlantic, and Mediterranean. This study also reevaluates a published data set thoroughly vetting each occurrence and justifying the geochronologic age of each, as well as excluding several dubious records. Reanalysis of the data set using optimal linear estimation resulted in a median extinction date of 3.51 million years ago, somewhat older than a previously pro- proposed Pliocene-Pleistocene extinction date of 2.6 million years ago. Post-middle Miocene oceanographic changes in cooling sea surface temperature may have resulted in range fragmentation while alongside competition with the newly evolved great white shark, Carcharidon carcarius. So what they're <clears throat> they're saying is a reduction in the range of the megalodon combined with competition with the great white is mm-hmm. the gist of what they're saying here. So I, I, one of the things that I w- wanted to Actually, there's a couple points that, in terms of this whole scavenger or not scavenger theory, I think that bears um, discussion. And the first thing is, um, and this goes back to the, uh, how can I say this, the peanut gallery out there, uh, you know, whining and saying, oh, they couldn't have been scavengers. There wasn't enough carcasses out there for them to eat. They needed 2,000 pounds of food every day. And that kind of stuff. I think (laughs) these people are... I think a few of these people are wearing berets and to- toting a big loaf of French bread. Am I right? Oh, I don't listen. I can tote my... Mm. But anyway, so let's, so let's look at this realistically, okay, with people making these claims and stuff like that. So, Julie, how much yeah. food do you think a great white shark needs to eat, okay, at one sitting, and how long do you think it'll last that fish? A 2,000-pound great white. Two thousand pounds. Right, you got two thousand um, pound shark. Okay, it's going to make a kill. It's going to eat. Okay, I want I want you to tell me, and it doesn't matter that you're whether you're right or wrong. Okay, um, you know I just want some numbers. So if you've got a two thousand pound great white, and it has food in front of it, how much does it eat, and how long will that food last it before it needs to eat again? And remember, this is a semi warm blooded fish. Okay, that's active, swimming all the time, traveling in cold water, etc. You know, relatively fast until it gets really bulky, but, you know, it's a top predator. So how much do you think it needs to eat at 2,000 pounds? It weighs 2,000 pounds. And how long will that food last before it has to eat again? Um, I would say maybe 100 pounds every two hours. Okay. So 100 pounds every two hours. 
Well, so we're talking weight. So that means that so every two hours, so every 24 hours, the fish is going to eat 1,200 pounds in a day. Okay. So, um, okay. So the, the yeah, that's a lot. That's that's as much as I eat. But uh, in reality, a 2,000-pound great white shark eats 66 pounds of mammal blubber and lasts it lasts it 12 to 15 days. What? That's a scientific fact as of a study from 2013 from the University of Tasmania. Yes, a 2,000-pound shark, 66 pounds of blubber, lasts 12 to 15 days. Call that two weeks. Okay? Wow. So if we scale that up, that means basically that a 50-ton shark would need approximately 3,000 pounds of blubber and would, again, last it. 12 to 15 days. And keep in mind, Megalodon at that size was probably more sluggish and the great white less active, et cetera. But, so anybody going around saying it needed a ton of meat every day, 30 tons every month, et cetera, is smoking something, okay? Because <laughs> the truth of the matter is, is that it could eat 3,000 pounds twice a month, and it was fine. And that just would happen to be the size, the amount of mass you'd get from the rib cage, let's say, of a normal wow. size whale in that time period. So, so they're not you know, out they, there eating every couple hours like people might think. No, it's not an eating machine with this you know, high-speed metabolism that's like a shrew where if it doesn't eat every 15 minutes, it's going to die. It's nothing well, like doesn't, that. Well, doesn't a great white, if it eats too much, it regurgitates? I think you're thinking of my brother. I'm not sure. Um, no, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, no, so, but, but my point was, Scott, is that so these claims that there weren't enough carcasses out there to feed these adult megalodons, et cetera, and stuff, like, first of all, let's figure out how many adult megalodons were there out there. I mean, how many killer whales are there worldwide right now? Great whites know. eat each other. This is true. Why would but, why wouldn't a meg be eating other megs? Well, I'm sure that definitely happened when the opportunity presented itself. Cannibalism would definitely be an option and stuff. Why? But Baby, so, baby, great whites eat their brothers and sisters mm, in the womb. Well, That's so, a fact. Right. I would imagine Meg did the same thing, most likely. Well, we um, what we're trying to focus on here, though, is is the point is was there enough food from whale carcasses, okay, to feed a population of adult megalodons? Now, so I the first question so. might be how many megalons might there be that are adults, you know, in the 40 to 50 foot range. You know, mm. I mean, if you look at how many great whites there are right now, and the numbers vary, I think there's supposed to be around 10,000 or something like that. You know, the, realistically, there might only have been 1,000 big adult megalodons in existence at any given time, even if there was 2,000, whatever it was. But, so I get On the entire globe. Right. So I took, did some number crunching, though, just to give us an idea. And I looked at, okay, first of all, before whaling started, there were 1.5 million humpback whales in the world. 1.5 million. There were 400,000 blue whales, 400,000 sperm whales, and this is just three populations that we're looking at. There are so many other species, smaller, et cetera. So yeah. then I said to myself, well, okay, so how many of these would be carcasses each year? Okay, and I looked at, you know, humpbacks live 40 to 50 years, blue whales live 80 to 90 years, sperm whales live 60 to 70. If I went by just the fact of saying that, okay, if a humpback lives or a blue whale lives 100 years, okay, that means that every year 1% of their population would die will give me 4,000 whales every year, okay? So if we went by just the most 
basic, basic math, okay, you would have over 3,000 humpbacks, almost 5,000 blue whales, and over 6,000 sperm whales dying each year. Over 11,000 whale carcasses just out there, okay? But the real numbers would be a lot more than that because, like, let's take a mother humpback. A humpback starts breeding at age five or six and can reproduce for decades, you know? So if she gives birth, let's say, in her life to 20 or 30 young, and half of the population of humpbacks is female, then you would think that the population would be exploding in nonstop. But they're not because mortality kicks in. Accidents, mm-hmm. disease, predation, mm-hmm. injury, etc. So the truth of the matter is, is that you have many, many more whales dying each year than just the most simple thing of going by how long their lifespan is. So realistically, right. there'd be... 30,000 carcasses each year just from those whales alone. So you would have plenty, plenty for a megalodon broodstock to feed off of if they needed food, in yeah. my humble opinion. And I'm known well, for my humility, you know. Just to let you know, I found the uh, found the, uh, the newspaper article about the supernova theory. You want me to hmm. talk about that a little bit? Sure, go for it. All right. There's not a formal paper out yet because the study is still going on, but this is from the Daily Mail newspaper. It says, did a supernova kill off Megalodon? New study claims particles from an exploding star may have doomed the giant shark. study found a supernova around 2.6 million years ago would have increased the flow of muons streaming from the atmosphere several hundred times over. Muons are able to damage DNA and could have remained in the ocean. This may have doomed the biggest creatures, which were the most susceptible. This is from January 2019. It ruled the sea for 21 million years, then mysteriously disappeared. Megalodon is the most massive shark species that ever lived, growing to 60 feet long, three times the size of the largest of today's great whites. Yet researchers have never found out why it disappeared 2.5 million years ago until now. New researchers have revealed energetic particles from an exploding star known as muons could have been to blame. Let's see. Let me get to the meat of it. A new study claims energetic particles from an exploding star known as muons may have contributed to the extinction of the prehistoric monster shark Megalodon. The new research, led by Adrian Milot, an astrophysicist at the University of Kansas, concluded a supernova around 2.6 million years ago would have increased the flow of muons streaming through the atmosphere several hundred times over. So we yeah, but, find but that Scott, the radiation... Wait, yeah? I'm sorry, but Scott, the... the I'm sorry, but we already just covered the fact that, you know, the supernova thing is no good anymore because they just pushed back because the extinction date. they pushed date. it back a million years. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so all that, that's, that's just a fluff piece then. If the extinction rate is three and a half million years ago, you know, that has nothing to do with it. I, I mean, the, I'm, yeah. this has nothing to do with you. I'm just saying is, is that, you know, those guys, like I said, they must have egg on, your, on their faces if they put this out there and then all of a sudden people are like, hey, well, you know what? Guess what? And... It just, you know, it's, I mean, let, let's, let's talk about something I think that I think you'll enjoy, which is speed, okay? See, one of the theories 
going along with Megalon being a scavenger is that, and this is supposed to be a scientific fact, obviously, the bigger a shark gets, the slower it gets. Okay? And part of this, this is a cartilage in a skeleton, the limitations of it, and part of it is sheer mass, etc. So, you know, the, the detractors, let's say, of Megalodon being a scavenger, okay, have claimed that the shark was able to swim. According to them, they're saying that science indicates that the shark could swim, at, had to swim, I'm sorry, at a minimum of 18 kilometers per hour, okay, or epoxy would set in, it would basically die. I mean, this is what they're claiming is a scientific fact, okay? So 18 kilometers per hour or 11, around 11 miles an hour, okay? Otherwise, the animal dies. Well, let's look at what extant shark today is fairly large, let's say, and, uh, you know, has a build similar to uh, the megalodon. Besides the Ceteronus maximus. The, which is also known as? The basking shark. Okay. And basking sharks get how big? Oh, 40 feet? Something right. like that. Okay, so a size of, well, the size of a chubby tensis. But a basking shark yeah. swims at what speed? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head. Oh, I, I, I do. It up, it's, it's three we'll about three miles an hour. Okay. So we're talking about three miles an hour, but the basking shark, okay, is able to breathe. However, the basking shark has an advantage that the megalodon did not. It uses what's called buckle pumping. And what would buckle pumping be? Um, the, when they breathe. You know, the cheek, yeah, the cheek muscles. Yeah, yeah. So, they don't, so a basking shark doesn't really have to swim in order to breathe. Most sharks... Older sharks, especially the ancestors of the modern sharks, did not have to constantly swim to breathe. They used buckle pumping. I used to pronounce it buccal pumping, but I was mistaken. Um, but that's what they – so this is why some of the sharks that you were saying earlier could sit on the bottom and things of that nature. Okay. Well, but yeah, some, I've, seen, I've seen photographs of, of various different kind of sharks resting on the bottom, including the great white. Right. So now you have, however, you have your other type of sharks – that are called, that use ram ventilation, and some of them are known as, ram ventilation means that as they're swimming, water is flowing through their gills, and they're getting oxygen that way. But then there are some that are called obligate ram breathers or obligate ram ventilators, about two dozen species, and these are the ones that have to be swimming or they will die and suffocate. Okay, this great white will, usually that'll happen too, unless it gets in a place where there's a high current moving, you know, on the bottom or something. So the great white, the mako shark, the salmon shark, okay, these species are all obligate ram breathers. They have to swim or die. And those sharks are all mackerel sharks, correct? Yep. And these are all related, distantly or whatever, to megalodon. So according well, to the... the the basking shark is distantly related to the mackerel sharks. It shares a common ancestor. So, but... My point is, is that these sharks, okay, they're saying the scavenger theory detractors, okay, the peanut galleries, I like to call them, you know, one of their arguments is that they're saying science says the shark has to swim at 11 miles an hour or it dies, okay? Well, if that's true, then I guess all obligate ram breathers would have that problem. Yet let's look at the whale shark. The whale shark is the largest known shark period, and per the top records out there, I'm sorry, the top marine biologists I spoke to, and records from the 
places that kill whale sharks, they have confirmed that whale sharks exceed 60 feet in length, rarely, okay, which makes mm-hmm. the whale shark larger even than megalodon and lead sickness as the largest known fish, okay? But the whale shark, which is also an obligate ram breeder, swims at three miles an hour. So how is a whale shark able to swim at three miles an hour and not die when the mighty megalodon must swim at 11 miles per hour or die? You see what I'm saying? It makes no sense. Yeah. Okay. Somebody's so obviously I'm, made a French mistake. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> so, yeah. But, you know, that, that's, but that's the truth of the matter is, you know, there's this, all this effort out there to try and turn this thing into this, you know, machine. But the truth of the matter is that as an adult, a big lumbering adult, the shark probably only swam as fast as a sperm whale does at cruising speed, you know, maybe eight, nine miles an hour maximum. And, you know, maybe a little bit more in a charge, but the point is most of the whales were able to do 24, 30 miles an hour. So when the shark was that big, when it was slower, I guarantee you it was fast. A 20-footer would probably be able to do 30 miles an hour. Looking at all the the current confusion over what caused the extinction of Megalodon, when it occurred, and all these different conflicting ideas and theories, why should anyone give you a whole lot of crap when the experts can't agree on yeah, all this stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's because people, well, like the saying goes, when, when someone has no life, they try and interject themselves into yours. You know, that's just, just the nature of the beast. But let's, well, you know what? Go ahead. No, I was going to say, let's look at some, some real rock-hard evidence here on video. You've seen the footage of Deep Blue recently, right? Yes. Okay, Julie, you've seen the, the recent footage of Deep Blue, you know, the real big great white, and the girl swimming with her and all that, okay? Yeah. So this is the, supposedly the largest great white on film. She's 7 meters long, 21, 22 feet uh, reportedly, okay, obviously well-fed, and she makes her living off of whale carcasses, okay? She doesn't care about active hunting anymore, and she swims quite slowly, uh, I mean, a person can keep up with her, it seems, and allows a free diver to put their hand on her, you know, and, and get dragged along for the ride, okay? And I've seen footage of two dolphins, dolphins, her natural prey, swimming along in front of her, speed up effortlessly. They're looking back at her, watching her with one eye. They tease her, and they take off. One of them even nibbled her nose, okay? So she's, you know, they know, the dolphins know they're three times as fast, and much more maneuverable. They're not going to, like, let their guard down. You know, they watch her with one eye when they mess with her. But the point is, is, and she's not trying to catch them because, number one, she can't. It would be a big ordeal for her at that mass. Number two, she knows there's a carcass out there with her name on it. So why am I going to walk up to a hot dog stand and get into a fight with somebody over their hot dog? I want to, you know, I mean, if I can just walk up to a free buffet and just sit down and feed my face. So mm-hmm. she's big. She's also slow, and she no longer really needs to hunt, okay? And that's just like a scaled-down version of what goes on with megalodon. Like I said, you know, you fall into the water in front of a hungry megalodon shark 50 feet long, and you skinned your knee, you're going to get eaten, okay? Think about this, too. Right. But this, the, the meg gets up to the, to the whale carcass, and there's a couple of small great whites that it's surprised that are already feeding on the carcass. But that gets a couple of ricochet biscuits on the side besides feeding on the carcass. 
probably mean like grabbing a shark and, and also? Yeah, it, it comes yeah. up and there's smaller sharks feeding on the carcass. And maybe it eats a couple of smaller sharks that are already feeding on the carcass when it gets there. It could. I yeah. would just think that the nutritional value of the whale meat itself, you know, and the, the the mouthfuls it would get, you know, it's just like it's the easiest course of action. You know, yeah. you're this apex predator. Yes, you're big, you're cumbersome, you're slow, but you really, except for maybe Leviathan, if they, they, you know, they decide they don't like you, you really don't have any natural enemies. You know, you're like deep blue. So you swim up to the carcass, the other sharks take a look, they go, oh, I don't want a piece of that, you know, and she crunches down, she eats the parts they can't even get to, excuse well. me, you know, with those chisel teeth. We got about three minutes left, so I guess it's time to pee on the fire and call in the dogs. Okay. Well, Max, I think your theory is very fascinating and um, totally makes sense to me that, you know, something that that large can't be swimming that fast, um, you know, just by looking at the examples you gave. So I think you're on to something there. Well, thank you. And I think I mean, you pointed out before, too, that it, that the Meg's got a cartilaginous skeleton, which probably made it awkward for it to make real quick turns yeah. as big as it was, an adult one. Well, I think they can't even, honestly, if you look at a whale shark, a big whale shark trying to accelerate, it looks, if you look at the, the, the caudal region there, it looks like the whale, the, the animal's actual body is straining to move back and forth through the water with that caudal fin. It's almost like, like the, those, like a friend of mine, he, he looks at whale carcasses and stuff like that. He had a basketball carcass. He sent me the video. He took a knife, a sharp knife, and he sliced right through a fresh vertebrae of a big basking shark like nothing. Honestly, like slicing lunch meat. Okay. He yeah, said if this was a whale carcass, that would never happen. Okay. It's the same thing. You know, you don't build a skyscraper using tire rubber as girders. Okay. Right. That's why whale sharks will never get as big as a blue whale. They have this upper size limit based on that cartilage. Cartilage is great when you're 10 feet long, 15 feet long, the size of a mako, let's say. You know, once you start passing certain size limits, even supported by the water, you have limits. Whale sharks get preyed on by killer whales, so you would think they would have a need for speed, but they don't. Their size limits them in terms of how fast they can swim. That's all, folks. We're out of time. Listen, uh, Max, thank you so much for joining us. And, Scott, I appreciate you doing the show again, having me back Uh, on. Uh, Don't forget, guys, to go and check out Max's new uh, and improved website, chronorising.com, and while you're there, be sure to check out uh, some of those books that he has on there that uh, I guarantee you will change your whole idea about deep sea diving. We plan on having Max back on here probably in about two weeks to discuss plesiosaur necks and dinosuchus versus theropods, which ought to be interesting, too. That sounds great, and thank thank you so much, guys. Thank you for having me on, and I look forward to speaking to you soon. Okay. All right. Have a good one. All right, everyone. So make sure you welcome us back again into your homes. We appreciate your time. And this is Julie Wrench for Monster X Radio's The Haunted Sea with Scott Martis. Thank you all for listening.